Yo, is this thing on? Man, whatever. Walk with me. Welcome back to Walk with TFB. Tim Bryson here, and as y'all know, I'm a Black millennial who is eager to have a filter conversation with authentic people centered on education, sport, and culture. Uh, today, we're here on another day of the Internationalization and Athletic Summit. Um, this session, uh, arguably one of the most important, if not the most important session throughout the week, is focused on global diversity, uh, global equity, global inclusion, and global justice. I'm understanding the name of the session, but also um, the summit. Uh, we brought together uh, panelists from literally all over the, the U.S., but also the world to talk more about um, DEIJ uh, on this uh, Wednesday evening in Australia morning. Without further ado, we'd love to introduce our panelists, um, starting with Jen, moving to Tyrone, and then Arisa. I'm just sharing more about who you are, uh, a little bit more about your career experiences, uh, but then how you got to where you are today in regards to the role you're serving on this panel um, tonight. So good to see you, Jen. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for having me. And I'd just like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm meeting today here in Australia. Um, it's really important that we acknowledge our First Nations people. So I'm actually coming to you from Adelaide in South Australia, in Australia today, and the traditional landowners are the corner people. So um, I'm over here to do some work. I generally live and reside in Melbourne in Australia. Um, it is wonderful to join you today. I am really stoked and was extremely excited when Tim reached out to me. So I am the president of Women's Sport Australia and Women's Sport Australia, we are a, um, a voluntary group of people that are working towards bettering the situation for women and girls in sport within Australia. So we are the peak independent national organisation in Australia working in this space and we work closely with sort of various um, federal government groups as well as state bodies because we've got all our different states in, in Australia and we also work with other different voluntary bodies that might be specific to sort of a, a specific sport or a coaching area or a different area but um, we play a key role in sort of bringing together the different groups that exist and advocate for women and girls in sport and are looking at ways that we can um, shift the dial and make sure that women and girls are given just as many opportunities as as men and boys in sport. So this for me is a voluntary role that I sort of um, have on the side of my day job and my day job I've been in sports administration for the last 10 years across a variety of different sports and my current day job is the CEO of Table Tennis Victoria so um, yeah, keeps me, keeps me busy with um, doing all different bits and pieces throughout the sport of table tennis, where we've got an extremely vast membership demographic of people from sort of competing in under nines to competing in over 85s. So um, in my specific sport of table tennis, this is not my, my sport that I played growing up or anything like that. It was... Um, a, my sports administrator journey brought me to this role and I'm bringing a lot of learnings in from other sports as to how we can sort of um, apply more of a marketing and commercial lens to the sport of table tennis. But um, I'm also channeling a lot of my passion around increasing opportunities for women and girls in the sport of table tennis. So um, I think that's a bit of an overview of me, but I'm sure we'll get into more detail as we go. 
I love that. Thanks for sharing that context, Jen. Uh, Tyrone, what's up, man? Talk to us. No, Tim, glad to be here and uh, good to be here today with Jen and Risa. Uh, you know, with uh, a lot of great work I know is being done all over the world. Uh, you know, my role uh, with Major League Baseball, uh, I'm the senior director of what's called the MLB Diversity Pipeline Program. Uh, the focus of the program is specifically helping uh, women and people of color uh, to, to break into the baseball operation side of our game, which is just one part of our, our game. Uh, focus on putting individuals on a pathway to hopefully become the next Kim Ang, the next front office superstar, next scout, coach, uh, athletic trainer, strength and conditioning coach, you, you name it. There's a lot of different aspects of this side of it. It's an area that uh, back in 2016, this program was created. Uh, that's when I came in as the lead of this program uh, with the idea of us trying to do what we could do uh, really trying to push things further. <laughs> Sorry, one second. Trying to, to push things further with our game, with uh, really in this side of it, and, and so much of it with our game, uh, you know, there's been a big emphasis on how we can just make a huge, huge strides in this side. For me, I got my start initially Thanks to Hank Aaron, he, he created a program in Atlanta that opened up a door for me and many others to get into the to the industry. And with that, and from that, that's how it's so impactful for me to want to now give back and pay it forward and help folks to make their way into the game. So that's just something that this program, we've been now around since 2016. We've been involved in over 500 plus hires through the program. So making a lot of good positive strides uh, including over 120 hires just last year and over 100 plus already this year. So um, take steps. And one thing, it doesn't happen overnight as far as folks making their way to the top spots with organization. You have to start somewhere. And that's what we're trying to do is provide a building block for that. It's good stuff, Sarah. Good, good to see you again. What's up, Reason? All right. Good evening and well, good morning, uh, Jen. Um, excited to be here. Risa Lovelace, my pronouns are she, her. I have been working in college athletics whew, for about 14 years. Um, and through, through that lens, right, I am currently the founder and CEO of RBL Theory, but also this is an AD for student athlete development at the University of Maryland. And similar to Jim, right, balancing those two jobs, the two loves that we have, um, really leaning into the diversity, equity, and inclusion lens because, you know, we have to think about People think sports is this diverse space, and it is. People are coming from different backgrounds, but I have learned that there is a need for us to actually be doing the hard work, looking at our practices and policies. And I think that's why I decided to create RBL Theory because I can do the work internally, right, at my one institution, but there's not a person like me at every institution. And so how can I spread my knowledge and help other athletic departments become better and greater and more inclusive um, is, is by doing this work externally to my current institution. And so I'd say since, you know, the last six or seven years, you know, I've been been asked to come in and, and do this work. I enjoy this work. I think the students really lean into it. I think we need some more administrators to lean into it. Um, but, I, but I really enjoy it. And, um, you know, I think as we continue to look at where we're going globally, and I know we'll get to this conversation because Tim knows how passionate I am about it. 
right? We're looking at these policies from legislators coming down. And I think the work that I do is going to become more and more important as I continue to really narrow my lens as an LGBTQ focus, um, specifically in sports. I love it. We're getting warm. We're getting warm. We're going to jump straight into segment two, right? Because I don't want to discredit nor uh, shortchange um, how we got to this work. I think how all of our stories, all of our lived experiences, of course, contribute. Uh, but I'm sure either our personal identities, whether social or not, um, experience we had in high school, college, or, you know, life outside of that may have influenced it. Uh, so I want to start with Risa and just ask, you know, what experience, moment, identity, like, introduced you to the work you're doing now in DEI? I don't think anyone just jumps up, like, you know what, I want to do that. Like, I want to work in DEI. It's like, how did you get involved or introduced in this work? Well, I, I guess I can jump into this first, because I was literally just on a call yesterday talking to some students about this. What made me jump into this work was Pat Summit. As a young kid, she was the only female figure I could look at that was leading sports during my childhood. So that might be dating me a little bit, but she was the one on the forefront, right? And so I went through college saying, I want to work in college athletics because I want to make, I want to give women more of a platform, more of a space to grow in, in this world of sports, right? And thinking about how do we get more Pat Summers, whether it's coaching or now the athletic directors. And so that was where my college journey was. But as I started to work in this field, I was like, okay, so we don't have women in the front office. We don't have black people in the front office. We don't have queer people, right? So you, your mind starts to race and think about, well, this was where I was, but now I got to expand it. And, and now I'm kind of narrowing it back down because I look at all the identities that I hold and for me, I think women have increased in the athletic space, right? We have female athletic directors now. I think the numbers of Black individuals have increased, right? Still not where we want for either, but they're better. But from an LGBTQ perspective, we're not really there, right? Like I look around the room sometimes and I'm like, I might be the only one out. And I recognize that coming out is a process for people. But again, I always go back to like when I was a college athlete, I didn't see me. And so I need some of us to be open about it because I need the students to see us so they know that whatever field they choose to go into, that, that they can be openly who they are. And so I think for me, it started with Pat Summit and now being in the field, just kind of going through the process. I think that's how I got to where I am. Love that. Jen, how'd you get to where you are in regards to being introduced to this work, this type of work? Yeah, I think it is. It's definitely that personal experience of sort of growing up and seeing like I, I was a pretty sporty child, um, but it was definitely there were heaps of options for my for boys in terms of sort of playing sport and seeing opportunities to um, represent Australia or represent um, in a domestic sort of league competition, whereas for girls there were much more limited opportunities. So I think I was all, always aware of that um, discrepancy, but I think it was as I was wanting to look at like what careers I wanted to do later on in life, knowing that I loved sport, I was always passionate about sort of if I could make a career out of working in sport, then that would be amazing because it wouldn't even feel like work. Um, but for me, a lot of the people that I saw working in sport were males as well and I was like well why is that like we're 50 50 population wise how come all, all the males are in the top jobs and um that really spurred me on to 
make sure that I could stick my foot in the door and actually find other women and those that were, were leading or pushing into that leadership space that I could approach them and learn from them and see what they'd done within their careers to be able to make myself a female leader in sports so that I could inspire the next generation. I, I totally agree with what Risa said around like it's the visibility piece that you, you need to be able to see people that look like you or that identify like you in those top jobs to make you feel like there's an opportunity for you. So I think while I was trying to learn as much as possible in this space, I, I applied for a mentoring program that Women's Sport Australia were running. And that was my first introduction to the organisation and the work that they were doing. So that was really great for me to be a part of. And that sort of started my um, connection with the organisation. And then I was asked to join the board, which was really phenomenal. And we had a bit of, I had a, three years on the board before I progressed into a leadership position and the the strides that have been made in Australian sport in in women's domestic competitions have been enormous over the last 10 years but there's still so much that needs to be done in terms of sort of um, support for female athletes female administrators in top jobs female coaches and things like that so so they're the areas that we're really looking at the way that we can make sure that that conversation is consistently there for females to be given similar opportunities to male counterparts and that we're sort of keeping different government or different sport groups um, accountable to making sure that they're constantly looking with a female athlete lens at everything as well. I want to stay there for a second, Jim, because you mentioned um, that there have been enormous strides and progress for women and girls in Australia. Um, I actually shared the video y'all, um, I guess, created uh, focused on Christine St. Clair. I mean, like the Google search and like what the number of goals and whatnot. How are y'all so, and this might be a question just really centered in like U.S. naivety, to be honest, but so like aggressive and loud and explicit in regards to what the issues are? Because when I watched that video, I'm like, this would never be posted or and definitely not shared on social media in the US. So how 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 do I get to be? Is that like a, a country kind of like commitment? Like, where does that come from? I, I think it's been a really interesting sort of thing. So the the video that you're referencing is around a campaign called sort of like change the internet or correct the internet, it's called. And it um talks about sort of search algorithms that favor male athletes over female athletes or male teams over female teams so that if you ask how many um who's scored the most sort of um FIFA World Cup goals they'll give you a male answer when the actual answer is a female athlete because that's what Google or the search engines think that you want to hear. So that was actually a campaign. It was it was developed out of New Zealand from um, a different organisation, which we've been very instrumental in sharing and connecting in with them to really amplify it. But I think there is a real hunger within Australia and New Zealand to make sure that we can really try and lead and advocate in this space because we are smaller, I suppose, and we have more um, ability, I think, to really come in, come in strongly and aggressively with those kind of messages. 
Um, I, I believe that New Zealand keeps Australia accountable. They've done some incredible things over the last four years in terms of really being firm around their commitment to female sport. They Last year, they held a International Working Group Women in Sports Summit, which I was fortunate enough to attend. And it was just really, really insightful how much they really had a, a really government-focused approach into funding women's sport, into ensuring that it is a key focus area and a almost a policy priority that women's sport is, is moving forwards at the same rate as, as men's sport or um, becoming more equal. So um, I believe that in... Um, contrast to that Australia has been like we really need to make sure that we're providing the those opportunities and we're not going to be left behind by New Zealand because we love a little bit of friendly competition across the ditch so um yeah it, it's definitely meant that a lot of our sort of national rugby leagues our national Australian football leagues our women's soccer leagues our our cricket kind of competitions they previously didn't have domestic competitions for women. They they only had sort of representation on the, the national stage. So to save us from having our female athletes going away and competing in competitions overseas, we now have Australian-based competitions so that we can keep them on our shores. And ideally, we're working towards a living wage for these athletes. It's a semi-professional sort of status at the moment, but our goal is really to make sure that female athletes can have a, a living wage through sport. So lots of strides being made, but yeah, still work to do. They're doing really good work, for sure, for sure. Tyrone, how'd you get introduced to this work? Because I know your story, like, we didn't get to mention it, of course, just um, for time purposes, but you were in this like general manager pipeline, if you will. I'm a son, somehow now I get to lead this diversity pipeline program. So how'd you get introduced? And if you don't mind sharing more about the general manager piece, I think that'll provide some context as well. Yeah, Tim, it, it was something where, um, you know, as I was making my way through, I was always continuing to push on that track, hopefully to be a general manager. That was always uh, a huge goal. Once I first got started, I was 22. And even back then I told myself, hey, I, uh, I was probably naive at that moment, but I said, hey, I wanted to be a GM in 15 years uh, when I was there starting with the Braves. Uh, it was good that I had that as a goal. I, it allowed me to just keep pushing year in and every couple of years, kind of seeing where I was at that time. But um, uh, one of the things that really helped me um, back in 2009, uh, at the time I was working for the Cleveland Indians, um, which is now the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, at the time I was a pro scout working for them based out of San Francisco and uh, in Right around in August of that year in 2009, uh, it really something really resonated with me. One, uh, I created a network on LinkedIn called the Baseball Industry Network. Uh, it's just because I, I realized first and foremost, uh, everybody has a story in making their way into baseball, and, and and just in general, everybody has a story for themselves. And and I wanted to, uh, I was I, at the time I had just started really using LinkedIn a lot more. And I noticed there were a lot of baseball people on there where they were just scattered all over the place on the site. And what I wanted to do was first and foremost, what could I do to bring a, bring a group together that could help people get maybe one step closer to getting into baseball. And uh, it just organically just kind of started from there trying to help people in general. 
and the group just continued to grow. Uh, after a couple months, I was like already at like 3,000 people in the group and just kept going. Uh, and now that the group is over 40,000 members. And uh, it's, if you look on LinkedIn, you'll see it there, the Baseball Industry Network. And, you know, it was just uh, as I was continuing to, even when I was at a club, you know, I, I was there with Cleveland. And I went later that fall, at the end of that winter, I went over to, to Pittsburgh to join their front office and was just continuing on my path. But I was also informally still trying to help folks and as much as I could to help them to get into opportunities um, and uh, and also just connecting them with other people in our industry. That was one my way of trying to help give others. So I realized I didn't have any roadblocks. I was very fortunate, really one of the first opportunities I ever even applied for. I got it, and that's how I got in the door. And thanks to Hank Aaron putting that program together, that was a, a pathway for me to make my way in. So it was knowing the importance of that and understanding that. Uh, and it, it even goes back to even my own childhood, even as a kid. Think about your first experience of seeing a sport. And for me, my first major league game I ever saw, I was in Baltimore as a kid growing up in the area. My dad took me, and I remember looking on a diamond and seeing players that looked like me. And that was so important, and that resonated with me. And when I saw Eddie Murray, who was he ends up my he's my favorite player of all time, and I, I finally met him actually last year <laughs> after forty some years. But um, seeing him, Ken Singleton, and Al Burmery, other players that looked like me, that's important, and that's a big part of what we have to do, even in general, as an industry, is make sure that our kids and people that are following our 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 players when they see themselves represented, that's so important. And uh, so for me, that has always resonated with me. And that's almost like my first little uh, understanding and just seeing how the importance of that. Uh, so eventually, I was, as I said, I was, I was on this path as far as being, hopefully being a GM. I interviewed for, for the first time back in 2015 in the fall, right? And actually went through that process with Milwaukee. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get the job. It was uh, a great honor to be. It was like finally that moment of, hey, I'm in this uh, space to maybe possibly get this opportunity. It didn't work out, uh, but it was also not too long right after that, MLB was putting together the Diversity Pipeline Program, and they initially asked me to be part of an advisory board, which we do have that's involved in that I run things through, talk to them uh, about things we're trying to look at, and they give us advice on how we can try to uh, – get things set up and, and process. And once I found out about that, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm very interested in how I could be involved on a day-to-day -day basis with this. And even though it was a veering, veering away from where I was going, I felt there was a big importance of what can I do to make a difference and impact our game, hopefully long-term with getting, giving people an opportunity. And um, even back, even a couple of years, fast forward a couple of years after that, I even interviewed to be the GM in my my hometown team, the Baltimore Orioles. So it was still another opportunity, but it didn't work out. But it was still something where, for me, I, I love exactly what I do each and every day. And that's what I tell folks in general who are looking to get into this industry, is understanding if you can find something that you can truly love each and every day, that is the most important thing you can do. I, I realize if people are thinking about things and they think about money, pure money, if it's about money, you can make more money in other industries to start with. But to do something that you're going to love each and every day, and eventually you make your way in and, and start being successful, you're going to put yourself in a position 
to make the money you need, take care of your family, but also be doing something that you're passionate about each and every day. And that's, and that's what it is really all about for me. And I, I see in the 500 plus folks that we've been able to help, this is their starting point. And now it's up to them and we can do what we can to support them as they're making their way. Cause it's all about a journey working in baseball and working in sports in general. It's about a journey and the journey is going to take you a lot of different places. It's taking me all over the world. Um, you name it, Japan, Korea, <laughs> Australia, India, uh, you know, it's, it's something that this game is, is amazing by that. And then when you see the power of what we're doing with things like the World Baseball Classic, which is a huge, big fan experience for everyone across the world, rooting for their countries and their players, you know, that is, you know, there's that love that people have for their country, but also just the ability how baseball can connect people. And in uh, my role, I just see the importance of how I can help put people on a path uh, hopefully then to have a long career. That's the biggest thing. Put them on a – that they're going to have a long journey and do something that they're going to love to do. And then if, if that's the case, then that's, that person hopefully will will find what, what it means for them to be successful and do something that they're going to love each and every day. That's well said. And, we, and we're starting to get some more context in regards to each of y'all's individual roles, um, which is important because I want to go to Risa for this question, uh, with this question first. And, like, what do you – what do you do right like we've identified the problem at least on a service level but like how does that problem get solved by the work that you get to do i'm um, as a founder and ceo um, of, of rbl theory like, what's, what do you do go to yeah so I'll, I'll talk about um my experience with the pennsylvania state athletic conference right and tim and i've got to partner together to do some of that work and you know what i really appreciate specifically about this conference is their commissioner came to me looking for assistance right he knew that he did not have all the answers but he knew that they needed to get better conference-wide and so you know in the work he came to us saying i know my students are hurting and this was during the 2020 george floyd incident here in in, in america right when racial tension is, is at a high pitch he knew some of his schools were doing good things but a majority of them didn't even know how to have some of these conversations. And so one of the things I said to him is, here's what you're thinking, but here the reality could be totally different. So let's start with some survey data. So we decided to put together a survey that will go to every student athlete across the, the Pennsylvania State Athletic Conference. So you're talking about thousands of student athletes, right? And as many of us know who do data-driven surveys, 90% of the time, you're not going to get the percentage, you know, return rate that you're looking for. But we actually got about 60% of the student athletes to fill out this survey. I don't know what magic the campuses were doing to get that, but I thought it was some really good data and some really great conversations that also follow from the data with the student to really mirror the perspective of what we saw written, but also to hear the same things. And this commissioner decided, okay, well, with this data, I'm going to create a DEI task force across the conference, one person from each institution to be reflected and think about um, now that we have this data, like what's next in the process. And so from there, he instituted mandatory education for the athletic directors and for the coaches based off of each coach, right? And so, sorry, each sport, I should say. And I thought that that was impactful because I'm not seeing that in some of the higher level institutions what we consider power five here. I don't think that those are common conversations happening at, at that level. And so 
Um, not only did he do the survey, we had conversations with their student athlete advisory committee. Now he's instituted monthly education sessions. Then the second year he came back around and additionally said, okay, well, this was our starting point. The ball has been rolling. Some schools have instituted more education outside of what he was doing, but like, what's the next iteration? So over the last year, I've been working with them to, to go in and have what he calls open forums, right? Where people can air positive things or air grievances, right? So we've started this journey, but like, what's next? And so he's been able to take that data institutionally and have conversations with the presidents and the athletic directors to say, you know, we made one, one movement, but what's the next piece? And I think he's thinking long-term. So he's starting to put together a strategic plan for the next three to five years to, again, not only help the conference, but also help his campuses. Um, so I applaud him in that work because, again, I'm not seeing a lot of commissioners of sports conferences do that. Um, but also he's, he's continuing to think about the students, right? And I think sometimes the students get lost when we talk about DEI, um, but also like reinforcing the message that coaches do need education. And again, at, at the level, at the highest level of college athletics, we're not often thinking about educating coaches in this space. They're probably the last people we're touching. Um, and so the, again, to just have that foresight to lean in early with them, I thought was very important. So I'm excited to see what that conference continues to do. Again, I am currently under contract to other organizations who again are thinking about how do we get better? How do we get our processes together? How do we continue to do education? I think, um, again, you can educate, 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 but if we're not changing our practices and policies, I think that's where we, we have a mess. And so I appreciate the people who are reaching out to do both and not just one. Um, so that's kind of where the work for me had, has really started. I love that. I love that. I want to come to Jen for this next question because at least the founding of Women's Sport Australia, what I found and read, came from federal money. Is that, is that accurate? This is interesting. Yes. So y'all got federal money. So I'm curious to hear more about like what the funding is looking like now from whatever you're able to share. But then two, just sharing more about the priorities, particularly the um, 2026 vision that I know y'all outlined uh, more, most recently. Yeah, definitely. So um, Women's Sport Australia has actually been around for decades so I've only been a part of it for the last five years but um previously I know that we became a sort of official incorporated association in 2005 but we were incorporated with a different name so we were called Australian Women's Sport and Recreation Association with the initials AWRA Aura didn't really roll off the tongue that easily. So um, I think the rebrand to Women's Sport Australia happened in about 2015, 2016. And um, that's the iteration of the organisation that I've known. But back in 2005, when we did incorporate, and I think we had, we currently have 11 directors on the board, which you might think is quite large. I think um, prior to our sort of name change and governance review in 2016, we had about 20 directors on the board. So quite unwieldy to bring everyone together and things like that. But um, at the time, the government, I think federally realised that more work was probably required in this space. And we were able to work with them to get some seed funding, I suppose, to have an executive officer to work for us on a lot of the different projects that we were, were moving forwards with. So instead of 
only volunteers working. We actually had a, a person that could actually do a lot of the day-to-day -day work. So um, I think that that is sort of how we operated sort of in, in that first dec decade of our incorporation. And I think as the landscape shifted, and like I said, I think um, a lot of sports within Australia became more cognizant that they were needing to invest in their own women's programs and, and looking to government for assistance to do that. I think the funding um, allocation was sort of redispersed into sport, which like I think is probably a great thing so that um, sports themselves could develop their competitions and their leagues and um, opportunities for athletes to be a part of things. So the role of Women's Sport Australia almost shifted a little bit from advocating for sports to actually have women's competitions and things like that to actually being like, oh, wow, actually we're getting those competitions happening. So now we can sort of start to actually make sure that um, we can focus on the equity piece a little bit more. So we're sort of getting that equal opportunity in terms of equality, but we need to make sure that... Um, all of the support and the funding or the payment that goes into to men's sport also now needs to be focused into women's sports. So that model sort of has changed a little bit. And um, with the sort of removal of government funding, we've had to be more creative in the ways that we're sort of seeking funding to do what we do. So a lot of that has been, we sort of went back to basics in terms of what we were delivering as an organisation since we didn't have the funding to do too much. And we looked at other assets and other programs and events and things that we would be able to run that would actually bring in a small sort of surplus so that we actually could maintain um, our organisation and continue to deliver different programs. So we have a mentoring program that goes, um, that I first was introduced to the um, organisation through, which is very much focused around that next generation of female sports administrators coming through. So that is a program where we have received some corporate funding to assist with that, which has been really, really wonderful. We take a lot of sort of, we um, yeah, have sort of philanthropic donations and things like that that come through. We have a few events that we now run here and there. And, yeah, often we have sort of just synergetic kind of partnerships with businesses coming to us saying we want to support women's sport. And instead of going specifically to one sport, we'd like to come to you to holistically work with you and see what you can do. So, one of our biggest chocolate brands is Cadbury Chocolate. They came to us um, during COVID saying, we've got money that we want to dedicate to women's sport. We'd originally planned to do activations at sporting events, but sport wasn't happening during COVID. So um, we worked with them to run a grants program and sort of we, we identified there'd been some great research throughout um, my state of Victoria and Melbourne that um, sports uniforms are a big barrier for female athletes that often it's sort of like you get the hand-me-downs of the boys uniforms or um, you don't feel comfortable wearing white because you might get your period or something like that so um, we put this grant program together specifically focused on uniform grants so that female sporting clubs could actually apply to get their own custom uniforms that all the women felt comfortable in, all women and girls. So that was 
something, a project that we were really proud of and that was a great example of how we could work together with a commercial partner to actually deliver something to the community and sort of assist with our brand presence, assist with their brand presence and also actually get money going back into the grassroots sporting community. That's so sick. The, the government still gives you money. So we, here and there, at, at the moment, we work with them on sort of probably more in-kind support. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So I'm going to go to the chat for this. Oh, go ahead, Reason. We need to learn some things from <laughs> Australia. Like, I'm literally <laughs> sitting here taking notes, like, it was something you mentioned a while ago and I was thinking like wow like the WNBA has a very long way to go to catch up to some of the things that y'all are doing you're talking about keeping your women home to be able to play the sport that they love right and the WNBA has been around 25 seasons and a lot of those women are still playing in other countries because we can't or we're not I can't say can't may not be the word we're not being able to support them where they can make livable wages you know for a full year that I it's just amazing the work that y'all are doing yeah we're certainly not there we've still got a lot of our WNBL women that go over to the WNBA to play and that's sort of seen as the great pathway for them so I think it is just constantly being able to sort of antagonize I suppose and just say well like the men seem to live pretty well off their salaries that they're making through sport What's the holdup between women being able to be given that? Like, how? where is that discrepancy? And it often comes back to, oh, the broadcast views or the commercial dollars and things like that. But the thing is, you give, you give women's sport the prime time slot and you'll get those eyeballs and you'll get those commercial investments. But traditionally, it's the men's sport that gets the, the premier time slot. So, yeah, if you're not giving the sport the same opportunities then you can't expect it to get the same results so barge in go ahead and write that down before i tweet it out before you do <laughs> for sure that's a real one tyrone i come to this, uh come to you for this questions in the chat uh dr g asks you know that a lot of the deij work becomes a moment uh, when something happens it gets highlighted in the media and how do you use the momentum from these moments to keep folks engaged in the work and with these conversations i want to Tailor this to you and MLB, particularly because I know, uh, I think it was Milwaukee shootings. Uh, the Brewers, they stopped playing that day and everyone else stopped playing, if I remember correctly. Um, so I'm curious to learn more about like what, especially in a sport like Major League Baseball that I think is traditionally in a non-U.S. base or non-U.S. majority. Like what's conversation like when th things do happen in the media, gets highlighted in the media? But then also how does that then affect maybe applications or recruitment for the pipeline program that you oversee as well? Yeah, let me let me start with, you know, obviously with 2020 and, and that year and what happened in our country throughout and especially with uh, George Floyd, you know, his, with his murder and how that just and along with a, a bunch of other things and, you know, that happened. I mean, it, it really uh, just raised the consciousness amongst a lot of people throughout, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, and even just big thing, even internally, first and foremost, with our uh, just the, our employees. That was uh, a big thing where really trying to make sure we could educate our uh, employees, our employee base, or just those that really wanted to see if they could, uh, you know, make sure they could share their feelings of what was going on at that time. Uh, and that, that was such a tumultuous time, even just as a, as a company, to go through that. One, 
regarding, you know, what was sort of the stance of, you know, our, our league as a whole, you know, related to uh, social justice, but also just, yeah, uh, and then our employees wanting to know, hey, how does the organization stand about, you know, feel about everything here that's that's happening? So it, it was a lot of internal conversations that we had to have first and foremost with our people that were there and how we could support each other. Right? And and even those that may not have been African American, hey, how can they also be allies in helping uh, and having conversations? Uh, one of the things that with us back in 2017, we created uh, employee resource groups at MLB for the first time. And I realized they had been around in other companies, maybe even much longer. But for us, that's when we first started that. And by that time in 2020, now it, it was something that was even more important of having opportunities to have those conversations and also our different groups and segments that we have throughout our company and doing that um, to be able to make sure we were having those conversations as a whole. And then, hey, how are we addressing it and, and doing things? Uh, even in, in all different aspects of our company and, and what we're doing as far as even, uh, you know, we then put into action different things that we were doing as far as helping in uh, different communities that were affected, including in Minneapolis, uh, and looking at, you know, businesses. How can we help them uh, with our DEI group? We have a whole area that does a lot with minority uh, suppliers and diverse business partners. Uh, so how can we help different areas there that we're looking for, for assistance possibly? Uh, to help rebuild in certain communities where things were happening. So we really just tried to take, a, take an approach, hey, what can we do to, uh, in so many different aspects, come together and start putting action uh, into place to help in all different aspects. Uh, and it's just something that I think it's just from there, it's continued to allow us just to continue to have more and more conversations as a whole. Uh, and that's been uh, the one thing that all this has happened. It's just created a certain openness and also just connected people uh, throughout our entire company, even throughout our teams as well. Because once we ended up right around that time, that's when we really started to uh, put our, our ERGs, started really f filtering them out to our different teams. Because our teams are now also having tough conversations that need to be had internally. Uh, and now it's a, now we just got to keep doing that, support our different clubs and helping them as they're building out those platforms internally within their clubs so all their employees feel invested they feel like they have a piece and a stake. Uh, and, and also as part of that, with our, with our business resource groups, our, our employee resource groups, a big part of that is also making sure that we listen to our employees. And uh, before we put out a, a product or put something out, make sure we're listening to our employees to get their perspective and making sure they're accounted for in that whole entire process. And that's something that has been very, very important. Uh, once they first started and, and dealing with everything else that was going on, making sure to talk to people that are in the know from their own communities to base, make sure that the messaging is correct and make sure that we can do things the, the right way on that side of it. So that, that's been a, a huge element of what we've had to do and been part of really part of our DEI journey as a company. Y'all got me fired up, yo. And I know we have about 10 minutes left. So I'm going to ask one more question before we move into segment three. I mean, I'll start Reese again for this question because I feel like, uh, it's around what you said before, right? I think it's definitely starting to trickle it uh, down, especially when it comes uh, from the top. Uh, but this work is not easy. And I say this work is in DIJ work is not easy, um, especially when oftentimes um, it's very personal in a lot of ways. And so I'm curious to hear from you, Risa, uh, just given the work that you're doing, um, the areas in which you uh, focus on in particular on purpose, 
how are you not gaining buy-in or investment, but how are you building a community around you to support you in the work that you're doing? While also potentially whether it's training on purpose or educating on purpose, those around you to also advance this work um, in their own uh, spheres of influence as well. Yeah, I think for me, it has been creating my system of support has been because I've been loud about it, right? I have been openly gay since I was 19, right? And so like, there's not, there's no putting me back in the closet. Um, but I think me living in an open way has, has created conversation with some people. And it's interesting for you to ask that question because I think about my entrance into college athletics, my first supervisor outed me. And it was in relation to trying to keep um, some a, a friend now, but someone who is from a different country and very religious away from me. She didn't want us to become friends, right? And so she used it as an attack to say, this person isn't gonna like Risa anymore because she's gay. And, and full circle moment just recently happened at the NCAA Inclusion Forum where I'm on the leadership team for a common, for the NCAA Common Ground, which is bringing faith-based leaders and LGBTQ leaders together to what find common ground. And this person happened to come to the session. And at the end of the session, she was so moved by emotion that she literally just hugged me and couldn't say any words, right? And so I, I go back to that first moment of where this person tried to tear us apart but in a reality, it grew both of us. And so I look at the support and the love in that way to say like, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different journeys to get to this point. Um, but for her to show up in that moment, to be in that space this past weekend, showed me the growth that she continued to take even after I left the institution. And so I think about, you know, being loud about being gay, I think has created some other avenues of people who I would have not thought would have wanted to walk in, in this journey with me. Um, but I think that that piece has been in super helpful. And then what was the other part of your question? Because I went off on a tangent, so. Yeah, how, how are you? I mean, I think you answered most of it for, as far as being loud and you know, creating system support around you. But I think one thing I would love for you to hit on is that um, because you're loud, you're creating these systems that then allow for more advanced change. But I think the part that I'm more curious to learn more about is that for those who don't identify in the LGBTQ plus uh, community, how are you also helping them to understand and or find, I don't know, some baseline level of care to give a fuck about like changing the shit for the future, uh, at least? Well, yeah, and I think, right, that level of care, I think is really high right now. I wrote this down because I saw the question in the chat. We're in a very horrible political climate when it comes to LGBTQ individuals and being able to really flip the narrative on some of that language that's being put out has been really helpful, right? Like you have a community that is trying to harm thousands of individuals. And, and to, to break it down to people to say, and I've done this with my students in the past, is like, okay, so you love me, right? Typically, yes. And then I'll say, well, X, Y, and Z is now having this law that says, I can't get married, but what if I love that person? Don't you want me to be happy and get married? Right, so really breaking it down and making it very personal. I know that's something we all, all talked about earlier today is like, when you make the story personal to someone, that starts to get them to really think about how some of these laws are going to affect the people that they love. And so, you know, our politicians are out here trying to weaponize the identity. And I think some of us have to try to flip that narrative and say, 
okay, here's what they're saying, but how do we flip it and say, but it's going to hurt me as a human that you love. Um, I think that's been the way for me to kind of break some of those walls down with people who may not understand what the harm that is being done, not just in this country, but also in other countries. Chardonnay flowing right now. So I apologize, Jen, for cursing. Welcome to the USA. But I'm curious to ask you the same question, Jen. Like, how are you building uh, an army, right, to, to do this work with you, um, both as the president of Women's Sport Australia, but also the CEO of Table Tennis Victoria as well? Yeah, I think it is about just sort of telling the story and making people understand, like, I, I think there's such a big power in storytelling and that personal aspect, as Risa sort of said. And, like, it, it is sort of just asking the question, like, do you think it's right that seven of the eight sport pages in the newspaper are all about men's sport? And then the other page, usually half of it's about horse racing and then the other half's about women. So, like, it, is that a right sort of split of of the way that we see things in women's sport like and if, if you don't think it is say something like we need to make sure that the next generation understand that like just because we grew up seeing things that way doesn't mean that that's how it has to be like I, I often say I think there's so many people that are passionate about sort of seeing change and more inclusion and diversity within sport that there's a few that are in those top jobs at the moment that are just hanging on to the old regime and they're going to retire, they're going to die off. And like once they're gone, we're going to have our current generation coming up who are going to be able to implement these changes because that's what they believe is right and that's what they know. So I think it is like I encourage people to make noise. I encourage them to connect and speak to their friends like use your power to be able to say well I'm going to watch women's sport I'm going to support women's sport I'm going to go along I'm going to follow female athletes I'm going to buy a membership for a women's sporting team because they really need the money like it's if you're passionate about seeing changes like you there is something you can do about it and you can sort of start to to influence the conversation and start to actually create change the last question is Tyrone. Thanks for sharing that, Jen. Uh, in a similar way, as I said before, baseball is very um, international. I mean, you mentioned taking trips to Korea, China, Australia, but also huge uh, Latin America, South American uh, representation as well. Uh, so how do you stay committed uh, in prioritizing people of color and women uh, in the pipeline program, especially given how global baseball has already been, but it continues to become um, in 2023 and beyond? Yeah, I think a big part of it is really um, just prioritizing. Let's make sure that everyone has a voice. Uh, and all throughout our, our game, uh, all, we have audiences that are all over the world. And, um, you know, and then, you know, you look even with the players that we have, as far as our game, you know, as far as players, is as more, as more diverse as it's ever been in the history of our game right now. Um, we, and it's something that, that's just continuing to bring more people to understand what baseball is all about uh, and bringing people all together from all different backgrounds, coming together uh, with the idea of trying to succeed and be successful and be, uh, but also have that great experience of being at a ballpark, being at a game. Uh, there's something, and that's one thing we're trying to, 
continue to push as we continue to market our game and continue to market it better is that aspect of, hey, there's a unique experience that we all have when you come to a baseball game. And it doesn't matter where you're from, but there's so many things that all resonate with somebody, whether it's coming to a game and, uh, you know, and having a hot dog or just having that fan experience that you're going to have there at whatever ballpark you're, you're located at, whether you're watching a winter league game in the Dominican Republic, or you're watching a game in Australia in the ABL there that happens. I mean, it's, there's so much that, that we all just want to make sure we're bringing to the table that people can enjoy our, our game. And obviously with games, we're, we have a game coming up in Mexico city this weekend. So uh, that's going to happen. So it's just, providing a framework for folks to have that fan experience. Uh, and then coming up, we have another game later this summer, and it'll be in London, be our second time coming back there. Uh, really, in, in a few years back, having that game to introduce uh, really the baseball to that audience there. Uh, so it's just something we got to continue to grow, but also make sure we're prioritizing the people that are in those countries. Hey, there's opportunity for you to be involved. You know, We end up opening an office in Mexico a while back, there's another way we're giving people that are right there on the ground an opportunity to be involved. So our international department is continuing to grow and expand uh, with that, with the idea people that understand those markets are going to have that ability to tailor things for those particular markets because of their experience and also their own backgrounds being in those areas. So it's just important that we always are considering that in anything that we do as a whole. So that, that has also been a huge um, last thing too, one thing I just wanted to make sure I mentioned is, you know, with everything that we did go through in 2020, we wanted to make sure that the voices of our players were heard. And that's where obviously with the Players Alliance was created uh, is a great way for especially predominantly our African-American players, but there's players from all over that are allies with the association that are part of that, wanting to make sure they wanted to have a voice and also make sure we could do things to get into our communities and bring people closer to our game. Uh, and that's what the Players Alliance is doing. Our office, the Office of Commissioner, uh, working with the Players Association, we're making a huge pledge to the Players Alliance for the next next 10 years where money is being put toward a lot of the services and a lot of the things, the programming they want to put in place over the next uh, 15 years. So it's just something that we're really excited about as far as doing this and providing this type of platform. So uh, the whole world, I think, just loves the game of baseball in general. And we just got to continue to keep growing our brand as a whole, but also making sure that people feel part of something special, no matter where, where you are in the country or in the world. That's good stuff. And Tyrone, I don't know if you saw my friend, but I'm, I'm looking for a job right now. So I'm not Mexican <laughs> nor European, but if you want to place me abroad, I'd love to consider opportunities. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> <was> good, man. <laughs> but in the meantime, man, tell Rob Manfred to drop the prices on the beer at the games, yo. I'm tired of paying $15. Uh, <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> So we'll close out, man. Segment three, uh, how can we best support y'all? Um, so we talked a lot about uh, y'all's individual roles and identities, the work you're doing, your respective organizations, but uh, both myself and those on the call and those who listen and watch later, um, I'm sure want to support and want to commit to the work that y'all are doing. Uh, so we'll start the same way, we'll end the same way we started with Jen, uh, then Tyrone, and then Risa. Uh, how can we, how can I best support the work you're doing um, and who you are um, as a human? Yeah, amazing. Um, it's been so great to be a part of today. I, I love connecting and hearing about the amazing work being done 
outside of Australia in, in all different DE&I sort of spaces. So thank you so much for having me. Um, Women's Sport Australia, you can have a look at us um, via our website, womensportaustralia.com.au. And um, we're all across sort of social medias and things like that as at Oz Women's Sport, I think in, in most cases. Um, that will give you a really good understanding of sort of who we are and what we do. We've got a gender equity in sport pledge. We actually do quite a look of quite a bit of looking to the Women's Sports Foundation in America and how that has created a really great movement around women's sport, obviously with the backing of Billie Jean King and some incredible sort of women. So um yeah, we've got, yeah, gender equity in sport pledge. We've got some information about our different programs and things like that. Um, personally, I, I'm very happy to connect with anyone who wants to learn more about myself and my journey or Women's Sport Australia on my own personal sort of social media channels, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, any of those kind of ones, Jen Dorman. Um, really happy to sort of share about my own experience working in sport or um, being part of the Women's Sport Australia board and what that journey has looked like. But I think, like I said, just um, using your, your own experiences to actually make sure that you're doing what you can to support women's sport and diversity and equity and inclusion. So if you see something that you don't think is right, call it out. Like we need to make more noise so that people understand that we we do want to see change and the next generation we we do want to make sure that there's more equitable opportunities for everyone to be involved in sport and that the current administration and stuff doesn't just look pale male and stale as we sort of say across a lot of Australian industries so yeah I think it's just being really aware of what sport looks like and calling it out when you're not seeing enough inclusion and diversity you said pale male and stale yeah see we need to use Teresa. i know you're gonna use that for sure i'm definitely gonna use that joint shout out to australia yo what's up tyrone how can we support you that's good Nah, i think a big thing is uh you know this game of baseball you know people come from all all different type of backgrounds you know academically what they've been doing athletically that can come into our sport and make an impact. And, you know, while my program, the, the main focus is the baseball operation side, there's a whole other business side that we have to continue to continue to grow and diversify. And, and that's where uh, I'm willing to help anybody who's trying to get into our sport and be a part of something that, that hopefully well, they will see is bigger than themselves. And, you know, that's where uh, just that reach to, to get, hold of folks, uh, let them know, hey, we can help them in some way, that there there is a viable career and option for them to do something in our in our sport and utilize their skills and their background to come in to, to and to find something that they're going to love to do, be around great people, be in a great team environment, but also with the goal of making our game better. And also, if you're in a position where you're at a team, putting your team in a better position to win each and every day. Uh, and also just make sure that the fan experience is even better for people that are coming to the ballpark each and every day. Uh, so it's it's just a, it's an exciting time overall, but looking to do anything we can to try to help somebody uh, try to make their way into it. You know, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn, which I'm very actively on. I share a lot of job postings also to come out, uh, both from our league office and also with our 30 clubs. 
Uh, in addition to that, the Baseball Industry Network group I mentioned earlier on LinkedIn, which has over 40,000 members, there's another resource and uh, that help folks. And you'll find there's a lot of great people in our industry that want to help others because they know about the journey they went through and they want to make it that much easier for somebody else to make their way in to the game. Uh, I also, I'll put in, in the chat as well uh, a link I have for my specific program as well that folks can also be able to use to help them, uh, the one that connected me, and also just get people on my radar. Uh, you know, the one thing that you have to, I understand with folks, hey, maybe now might not be the time, but it might be a year from now, now that you're thinking about this. Uh, but the earlier we can start, you know, somebody may be in school just trying to figure out some things uh, as far as their major, their skill set, uh, and that's where we can have conversations and also look at different programming, experiential learning opportunities that we do have available that can provide somebody with that opportunity and, and see if it's something that's truly for them. You know, not everybody is going to maybe be cut out for it. They, they may have figure out, hey, you know what, maybe I, uh, in our game of baseball, especially, especially if you're at a club, you know, a lot of times your weekends, you're at a ballpark. So you got to want to love and want to do that. You know, if you want to work at just a pure nine to five, uh, that may not be the greatest fit there for somebody. But, you know, also our office in, in New York City, and we have our other offices in San Francisco and Boulder, Colorado as well. But there, you know, if you're in an office environment there, a lot of times it can be a little bit different. So you can work more of a nine to five and that, that can happen there in that, in that particular uh, part of it. So, you know, there's all different aspects that are out there for someone to make their way. And we want, you know, women, people of color, you know, all different backgrounds to know that, hey, there's a place for you, uh, regardless of what your orientation is also, just there's a place for you to be a part of something special. And you're going to have others that are going to be willing to support you uh, along the way in this whole entire journey. It's great stuff, Sarah. And I'll, put, I'll drop those links in the chat as well uh, for you. Uh, last but not least, Risa. Yeah, I think for me, it, it, it comes down to a few things. One is to educate yourself um, on all of the anti-LGBTQ and trans laws that legislators are trying to pass through. Um, there's about 30 states right now that are trying to pass these laws through. And so I think, again, you know, I live in the state of Maryland. We are not a state that is trying to uh, be exclusive. But when students and staff travel to these other states, I think about the harm that could be happening. So again, I want to just say, like, be paying attention to, to those things. Have those conversations within your athletic departments if they're not happening now, because we have to protect our students and staff as they travel to these states. Um, the other thing I say, similar to Jen, like connect with me on my website, rbltheory.com for unfiltered conversations. Uh, join me on Twitter. I get very active in that space, um, Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and then my last note is really to be your authentic self in any space that you are in because people are looking at you, people need you. Um, and the more authentic that we can be in our spaces, I think the better our country becomes. So um, that's how I'll end it. Well, saying, go ahead and drop your website in the chat uh, so I can focus on closing this out. But I want to first say thank y'all panelists for being here, Tyrone, Jen, and Risa. Um, I know I learned uh, more things about y'all, even though we've had a previous conversation. Uh, so I'm sure those who are on the call whose first time uh, was meeting you today all have also learned things. I'm definitely excited and look forward to what connections, conversations, collaborations come out of this um, session tonight. Um, I know, Jen, like I told you before, I'll be in Australia at some point in the next, hopefully, 12 months, if not two years, if Tyrone doesn't hire me first. Uh, but good to see you. 
Uh, Risa, before I close out, man, obviously, you know, we, we on, man, you hired me in Maryland. Definitely learned a lot about international athletes and got to the summit uh, because of your encouragement and support over the last now four years. Um, Tyrone, I got to meet you what, six months into my role. So I want to say thank you on record and give you your flowers as well for continuing to be I'm an advocate um, and a consistent um, voice and presence, uh, especially when I pick up the phone and call. And then Jen, I remember sitting in a lounge. I won't say what lounge it was, but sitting in a lounge in December, uh, just sending DMs off on LinkedIn. And you were one of the first ones and only ones to respond. And so I want to say thank you for responding um, and being present today because your presence and your voice um, have definitely made a difference during our call today. Um, for everyone else, man, y'all know what we are, man. Day three is over, which is wild AF, man. It's wild AF. We got three more sessions throughout the week. Tomorrow, we're talking to the Sport Diplomacy Chief uh, at the U.S. State Department, as well as the NCA uh, International Outreach and uh, Strategic Partnerships Director. And then we'll close out Friday talking to the Director of Global Sport Institute um, down at Arizona State University. But again, thank you all for your continued support of this summit. Uh, make sure that you all tune into the podcast. This episode is dropping next Tuesday. It'll be a Tim Talk before we drop these uh, recordings in future weeks, uh, which I know we all, man, Tyrone, Jen, Arisa, y'all can't say it, but we walk in. Peace out. <laughs> Thank you.